good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute. Um, we've decided to get started. We're still waiting. One of our panelists has been a little delayed. Hopefully he should be here pretty soon, but we're going to go ahead and get started. Um, so welcome to Cato. Thanks, everybody, for coming, and thanks to everybody that's watching online. Um, we're pleased to report that we seem to have dodged the weather and got this in on the only good day of the week. So I'm Emma Ashford. I'm a visiting fellow in Foreign Policy and Defense Studies here at Cato. Um, is this on? You have to lean into it. OK. So I'll just talk a little louder. Sorry about that. So I'm pleased to announce today's topic. So we're going to talk about the future of NATO and the transatlantic partnership. Um, and this is a topic that has been discussed for years, but is probably more relevant today and in the last year than it has been in quite some time. Um, so the last 15 years have seen NATO experience um, a lot of changes, growing in size massively, um, and often seeming to search for a new goal, looking towards perhaps expansion rather than more to um, defense, um, looking to involvement in conflicts outside the region, in Afghanistan and Libya, um, and really just searching for some kind of purpose in the post-Cold War world. Um, so Russia's seizure of Crimea, um, almost exactly a year ago, and the ongoing conflict in Ukraine seems to have brought NATO back far more to its original goal of European common self-defense. Um, but there's a lot of issues remaining with NATO um, and with the transatlantic security partnership in general. Um, we see a lack of common goals and common vision um, among members of the alliance. That's not really surprising when you consider that it has almost doubled in size in the last 20 years. But events like uh, last week's Estonian election, where the pro-NATO governing party ended up triumphing at the polls, but it was a pretty close thing with a pro-Russian party that uh, was very anti-NATO. So when member states are having these kind of political debates internally, that poses a problem for the alliance itself. Um, military expenditure is another big issue and one that's often in the news. So in the last year, only four NATO member states met the alliance's suggested 2% of GDP expenditure. That may even shrink in the next couple of years as a couple of countries fail to meet that target. This has very much led to an over-reliance on the United States um, to provide troops, to provide finances. Um, and this is an issue that going forward is going to be particularly uh, important. Um, NATO also needs to decide how it's going to reorient its troops away from the missions of the last decade, which involved peacekeeping, minor military interventions in other regions, and more towards um, dealing with new geopolitical realities, perhaps a growing threat from Eastern Europe, um, and with new technologies, the threats of hybrid warfare, asymmetrical warfare, and new technologies. Um, and finally, NATO is considering at this point, given the conflict in Ukraine, what the future will be for NATO enlargement. Um, will it continue? Um, and how much support should NATO provide for non-NATO member states? So these are all really big issues. Um, and NATO at the moment, really, there's more questions about it than there are answers. So in today's forum, I think we're hoping to try and address as many of these questions as we can, particularly talking about whether NATO is best positioned to address European security concerns. Um, whether NATO should be reformed, how this should continue, um, whether there's any potential for a new European security framework, perhaps involving some element of the European Union's common security and defense program, 
Um, and perhaps most importantly, what should the US role in European security be? How do we approach this issue of burden sharing on transatlantic security? So with that said, um, I'm pleased to report we have a panel of distinguished guests um, who have quite widely varying views on this topic. So we're looking forward to a lively and informed discussion. Um, so I'll start with um, James Goldgar at the far end is the Dean of the American University School of International Service. He's been a professor at George Washington University and at Cornell University, and he's been a fellow at, um, to, to mention just a few, the German Marshall Fund, the Council of Foreign Relations, the Woodrow Wilson Center, um, and Brookings. He's the author of many books, um, including Not Whether But When, the US Decision to Enlarge NATO, um, and more, more recently, the 2010 Council on Foreign Relations report, The Future of NATO. Um, next to him is Doug Bandau, who is a senior fellow here at the Cato Institute and a former special assistant to President Ronald Reagan. Um, he's a prolific commentator on international events who writes regularly for publications, including Forbes, The National Interest, The Wall Street Journal, The Washington Times, and many others. Um, he's the author, most recently, of the book Foreign Follies, America's New Global Empire. Um, and last but certainly not least, um, we have Francois Rivasseau. Um, who is the deputy head of delegation of the delegation of the European Union to the United States. Um, prior to 2011, he was the deputy head of mission at the French Embassy here in DC. He spent his career working on security and disarmament issues, including posts as the head of the NATO desk at the French Ministry of Foreign Affairs and as ambassador to the Conference on Disarmament in Geneva. Um, so with that said, um, I'm going to turn it over to the panelists and we'll start with Dr. Goldgar. Um, and hopefully we'll have an interesting discussion. Great. Thank you very much, Emma. Thanks for organizing this. Such a great honor to be here at Cato, and especially with my fellow panelists. Uh, and a uh, great opportunity to be talking about NATO, the future of the alliance. Uh, there's a lot to cover. I, I, I'm going to try to be as brief as possible. I'm uh, eager to hear your questions. I am going to focus my remarks primarily on the challenge that the Ukraine crisis poses to NATO, uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the events that have taken place over the past year, uh, and in my view, the, the, the profound need uh, for NATO to, to respond uh, in a forceful way and to stand up for what the alliance has, has been about uh, over the decades, and especially since the end of the Cold War, as it sought to, uh, with the European Union, uh, create uh, and foster a, a Europe whole free uh, and at peace. Um, so uh, let me start with what I think uh, fundamentally NATO needs to do, and that is to continue to push back against those who argue that it is the alliance itself uh, and the actions of the alliance over the past two decades that is to blame for the crisis. Uh, the argument from the blame NATO crowd uh, on, uh, over the past year has been that NATO enlargement threatened Russia, uh, and therefore Russia, in a sense, had no choice but to go to war in 2008 with Georgia and then to invade Ukraine in 2014 in order to protect Russian interests. Um, I think the, the narrative that NATO uh, needs to continue to promote is that expanding the zone of peace and prosperity in Europe from west to east after the end of the Cold War is something that NATO should be very proud of uh, and is something that on the face of it simply does not threaten 
core Russian security interests. Uh, Russia, uh, and of course I can't tell uh, the Russians how to define their interests, but uh, in my view, Russia should welcome stability and, and prosperity on its borders, but instead, uh, under Mr. Putin, uh, it has sought to create a zone of insecurity in order to uh, create dependence of those neighbors on Russia and to exacerbate their dependence. Uh, whereas we typically see failed states as a threat to peace, Putin uh, views them as an opportunity uh, and has promoted failed states through the uh, efforts to foster frozen conflicts in Moldova and Georgia and then to go even beyond that uh, in Ukraine. Right now, uh, from the standpoint of the territory that's been taken uh, in Ukraine, uh, a frozen conflict right now uh, is, is the goal, essentially, of uh, those who have been working toward the ceasefire. It's right now the best-case scenario uh, in, the, in the immediate term, and it's not a very good, uh, it's not a very good scenario at that. Uh, it certainly prevents Ukraine from moving forward on its reform agenda and its, and its ability to be a successful sovereign state. So uh, this is uh, quite uh, unfortunate, uh, as it has been in the case of the frozen conflicts in Moldova and Georgia uh, that have prevented those countries from moving forward as well. Now, because of concerns by some in the West that it is the process of NATO enlargement that's taken place over the past uh, couple of decades, uh, because of this notion that NATO enlargement is a, is a threat to Russia, there have been calls to declare Ukraine neutral uh, or even to agree that Ukraine falls within Russia's legitimate sphere of influence. Now, the Obama administration in 2009 made it very clear that it had no intention of moving forward with membership for either Ukraine or Georgia. And there's nobody who's suggesting anything differently today in terms of any kind of near-term process of membership. Whatever happens, uh, and one hopes again that there's success in both Ukraine and Georgia, the, the likelihood of, of membership under a best-case scenario is, is far off. Um, but that's not really the point. The point is that Article 10 of the 1949 Washington Treaty states that NATO is open to any European state that can meet the criteria of the alliance and contribute to alliance security. And this open-door policy has been politically important for NATO's credibility ever since the end of the Cold War and the requests for membership uh, coming from the East. Uh, it's important that NATO maintains that credibility as an institution that welcomes democratic, market-oriented countries committed to the rule of law and protection of human rights. Now, for those who know some of my other writings on this subject, uh, you will know that uh, I, uh, along with Ivo Dalder a number of years ago in Foreign Affairs, called for NATO to actually uh, open its doors to countries outside of Europe, uh, which uh, has clearly been a bridge too far, but with respect to Europe itself, it's there in the Washington Treaty, and I think anything that NATO does to undermine its own treaty 
and to undermine any of the articles, including Article 10 of the treaty, would be a profound mistake for NATO to make. It should not do anything to compromise the open door policy. It should remain open to European states per Article 10, and that includes Russia. Uh, and hopefully Russia will move in a democratic direction someday. So uh, I, I think that's something that's very important for NATO to maintain. Now, it is clear that Russia's invasion of Ukraine last year, like the 2008 war with Georgia, has exposed a serious gap in the strategy to promote a Europe whole, free, and at peace, a strategy that was first enunciated by President George H.W. Bush in Germany in May of 1989. Countries in NATO have been extended the security guarantee that comes with NATO membership and, and Article 5 of the Washington Treaty. But we know that countries that are in the gray zone between Europe and Russia are vulnerable. We've seen uh, the actions that have been taken. We've seen, as I mentioned, the frozen conflicts in Moldova and Georgia and now the actions in Ukraine. And we see the vulnerability of those states. And uh, Emma was referring to uh, potential other types of architecture that might address that situation, but it's certainly not something that we have found to date. We do not yet have a solution for the insecurity of those countries that lie between Europe and Russia. Uh, in this conflict, I do believe that NATO's primary concern has to be, as an alliance, has to be the threat posed to the member states by Russian actions and Russian statements that are much broader than Russian, Russian designs on Ukraine. Uh, and that, in particular, is with respect to Russian statements uh, from President Putin on down regarding, the, uh, regarding Russian-speaking populations, whether they live in Ukraine, Russia, or elsewhere. And uh, more needs to be done uh, to provide reassurance to the Eastern members of NATO that, in fact, their security will be guaranteed and that a country like Estonia does not have to fear the statements coming out of Russia, does not have to fear that Russia might engage in activities uh, that would undermine the territorial integrity and sovereignty of uh, Estonia. And I believe that, in fact, that reassurance should include the stationing of troops from the West and the East. Now, there are those who suggest that the 1997 agreement that was forged with Russia uh, that precluded those deployments should be maintained and thus NATO should not in fact do anything that contravenes that 1997 agreement. I find that argument preposterous. Uh, that agreement with Russian actions is out the window. That agreement was predicated on the view that Russia was not going to take actions that would threaten uh, NATO member countries, and therefore, NATO should go out of its way to accommodate the concerns that Russia had over NATO enlargement, and therefore reassure Russia that we're not going to put infrastructure troops uh, in the eastern countries in order to alleviate your concerns about NATO. Uh, I, I don't think that agreement uh, holds any longer, given the Russian activities uh, in Ukraine and the Russian statements uh, regarding Russian-speaking populations in other countries. So NATO right now, with respect to European security and with respect to this particular conflict, 
this war between Russia and Ukraine. Uh, NATO policy needs to have uh, three, main, three main elements uh, in this situation. It has to reassure the allies. Uh, I do believe that NATO countries should be providing Ukraine with military assistance to enable the country to defend itself against Russia. Uh, and I believe that NATO, uh, led by the United States, uh, needs to adopt, uh, which in a sense it already has, uh, adopt a renewed policy of containment of Russia in order to keep Russia from threatening other parts of Europe. Now, even as we do all of this with respect to Ukraine and respect to the, with respect to the conflict between Russia and Ukraine, we still have to remember all the other global challenges that exist to the NATO members. All the other global challenges that Emma referred to in her introduction that NATO has been working to respond to over the last 20 years, that it's been working to respond to uh, with the European Union uh, in order to protect uh, the, uh, the member states. Uh, and when we think about all of the things that, and the, the variety of things that NATO has done over the past decade, Afghanistan, tsunami relief, counter-piracy, the Libya intervention. I think it's important to recognize that NATO remains the only international institution that can address these varied challenges. Now, that tells you something about the international system. It, says, it tells you something about the United Nations. Uh, I think it is a shortcoming of the international system that NATO uh, is the institution that we have to turn to when we have these other types of crises, if we're going to address them within the international community. It was one of the major reasons why uh, Evo and I, uh, however many years ago that was, uh, argued in favor of a global NATO. Uh, but uh, that is the situation we face. NATO is the only institution that can address these challenges, and so NATO does need to be able to address those challenges. And I will close by just noting that this is, of course, a challenge to NATO itself, given the uh, real potential for the hollowing out of the alliance due to the lack of ability of so many of the member states to uh, maintain the types of defense budgets that will allow them to, to maintain the capabilities necessary for the alliance to function as an alliance. And most disturbing from the U.S. standpoint, in my view, uh, is the decline in the capacity of the United Kingdom uh, to uh, go forward with uh, serious military plans, uh, the potential for the real hollowing out uh, that's taking place, or the hollowing out that is taking place uh, in the British armed forces uh, is a serious challenge to the United States, uh, to NATO, and to the future of, of the alliance as an entity that can deal not just with the particular crisis that's arisen in Europe, but with the broader set of challenges that remain for NATO globally. Thank you very much. I think I'll take advantage of the podium. Appreciate the opportunity to be here. There are important issues to talk about, you know, NATO's future and European security. Of course, it's interesting. We're discussing these issues in the midst of uh, the Asian pivot, which this administration has promoted. And it was supposed to be a profound reorientation of American foreign policy. <clears throat> Yet at the moment, the United States is engaged in a new war in the Middle East, 
and is confronting Russia in Europe, and one starts to wonder about what kind of a pivot it really was. But I do think the pivot does raise the important issue of priorities, which is certainly from World War I through the Cold War, Europe was the priority. The United States was prepared to go to war to ensure that uh, Europe was not dominated by a power viewed as hostile. It was prepared to uh, you know, put American troops in to abandon its historic policy of pretty much kind of strategic independence and a splendid isolation. And you know, it was only when you got to the end of the Cold War where that suddenly started to change. And I think for good reason. Starting to look at economic issues, security issues, the dynamism of kind of the region, all of these suggest that Asia was taking on extraordinary importance that would grow in the future relative to that of Europe. And especially, and I think most important from an American security standpoint, that Asia is the host of the one country one can imagine as a pure competitor to the United States. It is not, it is not Russia. It is not Russia. It is China. So from an American standpoint, where do you want to put your resources? And the, tra- the problem for America is that rich though we are, resources are not infinite. So you've got to make choices. And that, I think, kind of animated this idea within the administration of a pivot or rebalance because Europeans pointed out that if you pivot toward, you're pivoting away, and they were insulted to be pivoting away from them. Well, rebalance, as if that was something different. And I think that it should be clear that the United States can't do everything. That uh, So if you want to kind of increase resources in one region, you're going to have to take them from somewhere else. So the question is, can you maintain your resources in Europe and pivot to Asia. And that, I think, is a very important issue. If the U.S. really believes Asia's more important, China's more dangerous, it's got to come from somewhere. I think even more important to my mind is the change in the world. Now, foreign policy should be reality-based. It should be based on practical circumstances, on, uh, you know, kind of the world as we find it. And I would argue that the world has changed extraordinarily since NATO was created. You know, NATO was created, you know, you look at the 1950s, the 1960s, I would argue NATO made sense. Kind of our side, in terms of Europe, was divided, war-torn, fractious. There was still an extraordinary fear of Germany. I mean, there's a fear of Germany now, but it's a rather different sort. Talk to the Greeks, and, you know, they're, they're not terribly happy with uh, Berlin. But it's a very different kind of vision. But back in the 50s and 60s, the whole notion of Germany's role, the thought of German reunification, had a very different cast. The second was the other side. I mean, the Soviet Union, plus its satellite states, its alliance, whatever you want to call the Warsaw Pact, was clearly dangerous, a cautious predator, nevertheless willing to take advantage of any opportunity. So America provided this wonderful shield, and I think it made sense as a temporary measure. I mean, Eisenhower warned about dependence of Europe, and those concerns were left unheeded. Of course, you know, the famous aphorism about NATO came from Lord Esmey, You know, the purpose of NATO was to keep the Germans down, the Americans in, and the Russians out. And all of that made some sense in the 50s and 60s. It's harder to justify them, I think, today. So you look at today, number one, European Union is wealthier than America, a larger population than America. So it's not as if America is defending war-torn, hapless, impoverished countries. It's defending a wealthier aggregation of states than America. And, of course, all the Eastern Europeans rushed to join the West. I mean, you know, this kind of alliance with the Soviet Union was never really an alliance. It was an opposed system. And the moment it fell apart, everybody's wanted to come to the other side. And, of course, the European Union is far stronger than Russia on any measure that it wants, about eight times the GDP, last time I checked, three times the population. I mean, Russia remains a pale imitation of the Soviet Union, even after 15 years of Vladimir Putin. You know, not a nice place, but it's certainly not the hegemonic ideological competitor 
for the United States and Europe that the Soviet Union provided. Yet, I would argue, in effect, the Cold War alliance persists. America dominates. I like to call NATO the, it's North America and the others. I mean, that's really what NATO is. That America, of course, spends the most. I mean, that's always been the case. Europeans consistently fail to keep their promises to spend more. I mean, that was throughout you know, the Cold War, but it's today as well. Even the most threatened European countries don't do very much. The Latvians and Lithuanians, oh, they're not rich, but they spend 1% of GDP on the military. Okay, you're worried about the Russians and you want to spend 1%? And you want us to put troops there. Excuse me. I mean, whose border are we talking about? Even Poland. Poland's below 2%. Poland, at least it's increasing. But Poland, oh my goodness, the terrible Russians. Well, do more. If you really think there's an existential threat, do more. And of course, there's a shameless willingness to flaunt the kind of reliance on America. Last year, I had a, an article that I kind of made an argument about European doing more for its own defense. And a journalist by the name of Konstantin Gurdgiev, who I don't know, but I'm told is a figure of some you know, note in, in journalism circles, tweeted out, Europeans can't afford taking over NATO and our own defense. Imagine the public debt level EU would have to run. Now, has anyone in this audience checked the public debt loads of America? Has anyone ever gone to a conference on Social Security and talked about unfunded liabilities in America? So why should America pile up the public debt? Because Europeans don't want to pile up the public debt. Excuse me. Excuse me. You know, whose defense are we really talking about? And it's not going to get any better. There's an article in the Wall Street Journal today entitled, Europe's Defense Wanes as the Putin Threat Grows, by Ian Burrell, a journalist. And the uh, European uh, Leadership Network just put out a report last month on analysis, the Wales Pledge Revisited, a preliminary analysis of 2015 budget decisions in NATO. Now, the, this is the paragraph to me. Preliminary reports from 14 countries examined for fiscal year 2015 suggest that only one, Estonia, will spend 2% of GDP on defense. Six of the 14 states examined, namely Latvia, Lithuania, Norway, Poland, and the Netherlands, and Romania, will increase their military expenditures but not meet the 2% target. In Poland's case, a further commitment has been made to increase defense spending to 2% in 2016. Six countries will cut defense expenditures in 2015. These include the UK, the most important other member of NATO, Germany, the wealthiest member of NATO, Canada, another wealthy industrialized state in NATO, Hungary, Italy, another major economy in NATO, and Bulgaria. France is on course for a flat defense budget in 2015, while America is increasing its own. Now, the reality is this doesn't make sense. And it exists because America's turned Europeans into dependents. And what's ironic is that for an alliance that's kind of diminishing its military potential, it spent a lot of time searching for other uh, roles. When the Cold War ended, there were a lot of folks kind of in NATO who were really scared about what will NATO become. And at the time, there are these weird discussions that about whether it should try to fight the drug war, or it should get involved in environmental issues, student exchanges. I once wrote an article suggesting that we could turn tanks into bookmobiles and kind of send them out and shoot books out or something. I mean, you don't need a military alliance for student exchanges or something. Then, then it turned into kind of democracy promotion, which you have NATO expansion, which to my mind, a lot of that was to replace the uh, EU, was the way you bring countries into this democratic concert, expand NATO. And I think a lot of in America like that because America is part of NATO, but it's not part of the EU. So kind of the one you want to use is use the one you're part of, not have the Europeans do it, because as the Americans all know, they can't do anything right anyway. What would they do without us? 
And then, of course, we've gotten into out-of-area kind of uh, military action, collective uh, security. And I would argue that it's actually been bad for security. I mean, you look at the wars we got involved in. I mean, the Kosovo War. You know, that, I mean, what a mess. It goes, so, I mean, there were, we helped encourage the breakup of Yugoslavia. Then we took just one side. We didn't care if the other side did ethnic cleansing. We win in Kosovo. We don't care if our friends do ethnic cleansing. It's still a mess. You know, we have set up our own borders and then tell everybody else they can't change their borders. Strikes me, what a mess there. Then there's Afghanistan. Made sense to get rid of Al-Qaeda. I'm not sure what we're doing 13 years later trying to create democracy in Central Asia. Libya has been one of the great catastrophes. And you know, Ukraine, when kind of talking about treating it as kind of an almost ally, I mean, the people who propose to put troops there and all sorts of things. And I think what we're doing here is we're not giving responsibility to the right countries for the right wars. You know, in both Afghanistan and Libya, in a sense, one side got everybody else involved. America wants to go to Afghanistan and drags everybody else in. And Europeans, particularly Europe, um, UK and France, want to go to Libya, so they want to drag America in. So you're getting bad wars that don't make sense because you know, the people who really want them aren't paying the entire cost, especially if they can offload it onto the United States. So what we see today is the United States is defending not just core Europe, which was viewed as vital to American interests, but I'd kind of say you know, the helpless, the luckless, the irrelevant. I mean, I call the Baltics the helpless. I mean, they're small countries, hard to see how they defend themselves. Poland is luckless, given where it's located. At least Germany's not such a problem anymore, but you think of bad neighborhoods. They lived in it for centuries. The Balkans, I view, is irrelevant. I mean, Montenegro should be part of NATO. Why? And then, uh, you know, throw in Georgia and Ukraine as kind of potential uh, conflicts, I think, are far worse. Instead of adding allies to NATO that have actually made the major alliance members more secure, adding allies has made it less secure. It's brought in countries that are, in fact, security black holes. They have very little military potential. They bring conflicts along with them. They extend America's reach, and they extend, uh, you know, the reach of the security uh, guarantees. So the alliance has changed dramatically since the end of the Cold War, and I think not in a very good way. I'd argue that it's become a bad deal all around. So what we need is change, not just reform. I mean, there's all sorts of proposals for reform, and certainly you know, the NATO could be helped by greater European interoperability and coordination and innovation, all these things that get talked about. But you know, if you look at the history of NATO, especially in recent times, both American officials, especially the Secretary of Defense, as well as the NATO uh, you know, General Secretary, you know, Secretary General, they, all, they beg, they demand, they cajole, they threaten, they whine. I mean, it's really kind of appalling. I mean, Secretary of Defense whines. Why don't you spend more? Oh, my goodness, you've got to spend more. I mean, NATO officials come and I go to lunches, and yes, yes, all of our members should spend more, and it doesn't happen, and it won't. Because Europeans look at this and say, what are the threats that we face? I don't see them. We have economic problems, and America will defend us. So why on earth? Why on earth should we do this? The US has helped turn Europe into helpless dependence, and it's consciously sought to discourage European independence. I mean, it's not just the defense guarantee, but the US has always been very upset with the EU wants to do something independently. Oh my goodness, can you imagine? How can the world operate without America leading, whether it's from behind or in front? Doesn't really matter, I suppose. And this is a very bad situation to be in. And I would argue the out-of-area operations, I think, are a great mistake. That one, you know, one can have coalitions of the willing where you have shared interests to operate. That we should limit you know, European defense to kind of the core. That's the core function. You don't need NATO to do, whatever that means, tsunamis or Libya or Afghanistan or something else. What you need to do is find countries that are committed as opposed to drag everybody in because they're part of the alliance and they're kind of browbeaten into doing it. 
Now, I do think some sort of a continental security architecture and organization is necessary, but there's no reason to have one that's dominated by the United States. The US should be interested. It should be willing to act if necessary, kind of an offshore balancer, I suppose. But unlike Asia, Europe lacks the kind of security threat to America that one can imagine, of a hegemonic kind of peer competitor of any sort. Russia's not going to fill the bill. Russia's not China. Russia's not even Europe in terms of its capabilities. Putin's a thug, but it's very bounded in terms of abilities, I think, and ambitions compared to the past. It's time to turn primary responsibility for Europe over to Europe. We need to discuss how to do it. It could be through the EU, some kind of an organization out of that. It could be a NATO without the US or a NATO with America as an associate member. One could imagine various formulations of how that would take. But it is time to change things. You know, we have a crisis now with Ukraine. And it's a real mess. But the question ultimately is, is what is America's security? And is America's security promoted by confronting a country with nuclear weapons over issues that it views as vital on its border? It strikes me that Russia today is kind of a, the pre-1914 great power. It wants respect. It cares about its borders. And those things it will play very tough and mean with. It's unfortunate if you're on the border. It's unfortunate if you're part of Ukraine or, or Georgia. But the question of American interest should guide American policy. <clears throat> And I think what we see today in many ways is what NATO is doing is trying to solve problems that it helped create. Not caused, but certainly contributed to with a whole bunch of other policies that have gotten us to where we are. The NATO today, I would argue, is not really serving American security interests. And that should be the fundamental objective for the United States. Thank you. Thank you, Evelyn. I'm in the happy situation to, uh, to, to be able to agree to most what I've heard, particularly the Duke, but, but also uh, James mostly. I have some disagreement on some points, but uh, mostly uh, I agree with their judgment. Uh, we are in, uh, facing a new world more dangerous than ever. When this new world is characterized by continuing old-type crisis like Ukraine, you said rightly that it was a 1940 or pre-1940 crisis, crisis of the 20th century, and crisis of the 21st century. Uh, we, uh, the interesting point is that in both cases you use hybrid war techniques, not uh, uniquely uh, the classic uh, tanks and planes that uh, we used to see, but uh, um, problems ranging from uh, civilians attacking uh, um, a governor's house, um, demonstration, terrorists, and also classic weapons, obviously. So it's a much more broad landscape that we have. And uh, in this landscape, we have, uh, as an alliance, uh, probably three uh, threats. One is a long-term threat. You describe it well, Doug. It's China growing, uh, becoming a competitor to the US mostly, but, well, mostly to the Western world globally, because, you know, in a world where you have many more bricks emerging, the, if there is something which is sure in the 10 last years that the feeling of solidarity between the uh, governments, uh, at, at, at least uh, between US and EU, has grown. Uh, the second is the classical threats posed by Russia to Ukraine and to, by consequence, indirectly to the immediate neighborhood of Eastern Europe. I would submit that uh, this is the most visible for NATO today, maybe. But uh, except for two or three members of the EU, it's not uh, an existential threat for the whole of the EU. It's a very serious threat, but, and that may be a small nuance that I have. 
you know, f f when you look at this, Ukraine one year, uh, one year and a half ago was in the hands of Putin. And now what has Putin gotten? Crimea and two oblasts. We have uh, won 90% of Ukraine. Ukraine will maybe remain neutral if, because Ukraine needs peace. Unfortunately, nobody in the US and nobody in the EU is really ready to go at war with Ukraine. So, but, and we know also that if we want to succeed in this uh, conflict, we have to make uh, the same than we made with West Germany facing uh, East Germany, South Korea facing North Korea. We have to make Ukraine prosperous and uh, so clearly better placed than uh, Russia and the rest uh, and the Eastern Ukraine that uh, in a certain time it will appear obvious that uh, uh, we have won. So uh, this is uh, something that we can achieve only through ceasefire and that's why through all its shortcomings the Minsk agreement uh, has uh, some positive aspects. Uh, now, uh, the third threats is seen by many as a, uh, in Europe as an existential one. And these threats comes, uh, the, you said Libya, but it's broader than Libya. It's, uh, uh, it's the threats of foreign uh, fighters, of violent extremism. Um, La Libya is maybe the one today which symbolizes more, but uh, yesterday it was Syria. Uh, you know we have uh, about 1,000 migrants every week uh, through the Mediterranean. All, uh, most of them living from Libya, uh, being exploited in uh, uh, awful uh, human conditions. Uh, part of them are joining, others are robbed, are uh, victims of uh, many abuses. And however, between them, there's also foreign fighters coming. So that's why uh, globally Libya uh, today, but Syria, uh, uh, when you look at uh, Bulgaria, Greece, or or Cyprus, but uh, Libya today more than Syria yesterday, is an essential problem for us. And uh, this is why uh, there, there is this feeling in Europe that uh, my uh, minister Mogherini, I say minister, sorry for <laughs> it's liberty uh, <laughs> of language, <laughs> uh, uh, Mrs. Mogherini, HRVP uh, of the European Union, uh, described uh, recently saying when you go to east of Switzerland, people are concerned by Ukraine. And when you go uh, to south and uh, west of Switzerland, people are concerned by Mediterranean Sea and Libya. Um, that's the situation we have. How to answer it in a context where, if I take from a point that both uh, James and Duke have underlined, the main problem we have is spending. Spending in Europe, spending globally maybe, but spending in Europe mostly. Yes, this is absolutely true. Uh, this is a fact. Um, let me just uh, point out something that usually in US you, you don't focus enough on. There is imbalances between what US spends and what European spends. But there is a much, much bigger imbalance between what some Europeans spend and some other Europeans spend. And this is a bigger imbalance that we have to face today, much more preoccupating for us than the imbalance between US and, and EU because, you know, uh, uh, this imbalance is sta stable. Uh, burden sharing, we discussed that since 50 years. But the differences uh, between uh, France, let's say, basically, and Poland, uh, Greece, who are the three countries, I think, who, who spend uh, about 2%, and the rest uh, of the EU is uh, astounding. Uh, it's not widely known that EU has more men in uniform than the US. Uh, but, uh, however, EU spent 10% uh, in the best case scenario uh, of all the US military researches expenditure, which are the important things. And you know, uh, in these 10% of researches, 
France and UK are above uh, around 80% of it, you know? So 80% of it, 80% uh, of what is really the future of European defense is carried out only on the French, sorry to say, and a bit less now, unfortunately, as you have said, the British shoulders. And this is not sustainable. Now, how to do uh, things operational in a context where you need to have the most efficient, cost-effective uh, system of uh, working? Yes, we need a change. We need first to agree, one, absolutely necessary, on a common vision of the threats. As I said, we have three different types of concerns. We probably need between uh, within NATO and maybe uh, and uh, even more within EU, but it's uh, even more difficult within EU maybe than within NATO because the US is not here to make the whip. Uh, <laughs> a common uh, strategic concept explaining what are our threats and what are our interests. So that we can explain to our citizens that we are not spending money just to please uh, what uh, uh, Eisenhower called the, poly the military military industrial complex, yes, but because we need it. Uh, second, we would need uh, an operational articulation between EU and NATO. Unfortunately, it was the initial idea in the 50s. Uh, unfortunately, this is not entirely the case for uh, three or four reasons. One, uh, the most obvious one, which has prevented common operation to develop and common planification has been the, sorry to say, the Turkish Cyprus. Cyprus crisis, which prevent us to go more deeply in cooperating together. There are other difficulties, some neutral countries who <coughs> are not keen to, to, to still to go associated with NATO in Europe. Uh, some uh, NATO members, either small and fearing an EU free dominance, either UK, uh, who are still, uh, for internal political reasons, uh, unable to, um, uh, to overcome their internal political difficulties uh, in a constructive way. Uh, and uh, maybe also, I have to say, uh, because there's also uh, still, uh, we obviously uh, need to um, explain better to the EU population that the EU is not only, uh, and NATO are not only, the West is not only here to provide uh, uh, money and welfare, but also to, to defend, and that we are not always living in the post kantian world, but in a difficult world, that we are at war. And this is uh, something where we, we still need to, to, to make a lot of explanations. Uh, now, um, if this uh, ideal vision of a NATO, of a harmonious NATO-EU system is not working as, ma as uh, uh, well as we would like, what should we do? Uh, there is, uh, and let's come to money, because to budget, because basically I think this is uh, the, the, uh, the real uh, thing which is uh, what we are needing. Um, the, I was always struck by a sentence that the Italian minister uh, two years ago made here. He said, you know, when I ask money to my Italian parliament for NATO, something that Italy would do with, with NATO or within NATO, I get, I ask five dollars, five euros in that case, I get one. And why? Because everybody says, oh, but NATO is led by US, so it's up to US to pay. And it's true. There's the old sentence. The one who pay is, co is in command, is invalid, but the reverse is true. The one is invalid has to pay. <laughs> uh, and uh, as you have uh, rightly pointed out, there has not been a great appetite uh, till now in NATO structure 
to, to share more the, the power. We have made a lot of progress, uh, but uh, still we have the Supreme Elite Commander who can only be Americans for good reasons that we know, and this is a limitation of a pure NATO action. When I ask, continue the minister, uh, uh, money for Italy, I get two euros on five. Why? Because people believe that uh, I shall manage to get the contract to Italian uh, companies, so it will make it uh, good for it will be good for Italian jobs. But I get only two because everybody knows that Italy alone cannot uh, do much, and so. Uh, um, I get two in order to, uh, to, to, to give some subventions to, the, to, to, to fight uh, unemployment rather than to defend Italy. Now, when I ask for Europe, believe it or not, I get free. Why? Because uh, the arguments uh, against unemployment is still a bit valid because uh, what I get money from uh, uh, my parliament, uh, they know that I shall uh, buy maybe uh, Italian goods and not uh, cheaper uh, and maybe better, but American <laughs> goods. Um, uh, and also because they believe, right or wrong, that uh, EU win will one day have a capability of acting in uh, a more efficient way than only Italy. Uh, th that's uh, where we are. Uh, and uh, how now can we uh, try to organize uh, ourselves for the future? What does it tell us? It tells us that what we have to work are. Uh, uh, in three directions. Uh, we have to continue, first of all, deconflicting. Deconflicting uh, between member states, between uh, EU, uh, small uh, level of operation, but growing, it's the only thing which grows a bit by these days, and NATO. Deconflicting, it means that we should not make things overlapping. You know, there's 22 models of helicopters uh, uh, in NATO countries and in Europe. We should be able, basically, to, to, to go for more rationalization, more efficiency of our a budget of our money, money using, and this has first to start by deconflicting, so that we don't do overlapping or contradicting programs. The second point, which is absolutely uh, essential uh, in my view, uh, is uh, to to be able uh, at European level, because I'm here also to, to talk to you a bit about the EU, to have a more consistent strategic concept. We have to have a vision of our interests, as I said, a vision, a common vision of the threats. We have also to have a common vision of the remedies, of the tools. Uh, you know that uh, in any uh, in France or in UK uh, the, or, or in Germany or in within NATO, we have a consistent uh, range of analysis from the nuclear weapon till uh, the uh, basis till the normal gun uh, of every soldier. We are not able to do that in the EU yet because the nuclear or strategic level is not yet integrated fully in the CSDP, and as long as this is not done. Uh, it will be difficult for us to be able to make the case to our population that we are here to protect them. And so I hope that at one point we shall achieve a system where NATO, instead of being expanding, uh, come, let's come back to NATO, instead of being expanding too much, over, overreaching, I would think that NATO has to refocus a bit on Article 5, mostly because of Russia, but also to refocus about this fundamental mission, which is to ensure our common security by giving us the tools for having it. Uh, and this means that in the repartition of missions, we see U.S. retreating from Europe. We should be able to, 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 to work out more of the arrangements which allow uh, the U.S. to intervene or not when he believes it's in interest or not, or to have a modulated intervention. Because let's be clear, today there's no intervention with air power in the surroundings, in the neighborhood of the EU that we can, for the time being, conduct without NATO because NATO 
owns everything. So even if we would like, we have tried in Yugoslavia in 1993, we have tried in Libya in 2011, there's no way we can conduct any significant multilateral European operations, be it in the context of NATO or EU. We are not here to make theology, it is nonsensical at this time. Uh, nobody wants that anymore. Uh, but uh, there's not a single member state, a single organization which can do that without using secure NATO uh, uh, operation. So I think we should focus more on the complementarity with uh, NATO and EU, uh, so that uh, Europeans, uh, whatever the frameworks, would be able to be more proactive by their own in their neighborhood, uh, but uh, making a sort of uh, slightly higher level for the intervention of NATO, but we will not uh, be able to work without NATO. But this is a change of mind because till now NATO was more trying to expand everywhere rather than to focus on its core mission. Uh, while expanding everywhere in the context of a hybrid role, I want really to tell you that uh, hybrid role means reconstructions, means humanitarian aid, means good governance, <laughs> means police operations, means formation and disarmament, and these are fields where the EU has a lot of experience already, uh, and money. I can Great. Um, so we certainly covered a lot of ground there. Um, and so I think I'd like to go ahead and open it up to question and answer. Um, I imagine our panelists probably um, perhaps would like to discuss some points among themselves, but for the sake of time, we'll try and do it within the context of question and answer from the audience. Um, please wait for a microphone to be brought to you. Um, if you have a question, <coughs> that ensures that um, everyone listening online can hear your question. Um, please state your name and affiliation. Um, and then please, as always, state your uh, statement in the form of a question. Um, so, up there. Good afternoon. My name is George Baker. I'm with the uh, law firm of Williams and Jensen here in town. I represent energy producers in the United States. Very fascinating uh, presentations. Thank you. Uh, in listening to you, you have um, presented NATO's issues on the military side and somewhat the economic side. I'd like to see if you had any observations with respect to um, the issues we're seeing emerging on the potential sale of energy products to the NATO countries, to the extent they would impact the Ukrainian situation, the Baltic situation, etc. We understand that many of the ambassadors are very much for this. They've been talking about it. But I would like to know how it's, it, it would coincides with the NATO perspective in terms of security, economic, and military. That would be my question. Thank you. Uh, it's a good question. Um, it is a question which is uh, almost exclusively uh, dealt with till now uh, in uh, the operational field by the EU. Why that? Because we have uh, the tools, legal and uh, regulatory ones, you know. And uh, when it comes to NATO, NATO can only insist that energy security is important for uh, Europe, and we are convinced of that. The EU has a strategy for promoting energy security. NATO can... Uh, only lobby uh, the U.S. to to give more uh, um, 
official uh, room for sales of uh, gas and oil to Europe. Uh, that said, you know, uh, when you come to, if we, we are here between friends, uh, uh, Chatham House rule, it's more symbolic than uh, realistic because if uh, US is putting on the market uh, oil and gas, uh, it will uh, go uh, probably uh, to uh, Asia because Asia will offer more than uh, a better price than uh, uh, the one uh, Europe can get because we still can get uh, energy through long-term contract uh, at, at a relatively cheaper price than uh, Asia could uh, would offer. Uh, yes, we argue then that this will depress the global price of oil and gas and this would help a bit Europe, but not uh, immediately and not in a, in a strategic way which would really make a big difference to Ukraine. So concretely what are we doing? It's uh, to work on uh, uh, more concrete projects, such as uh, refitting the Romanian and Bulgarian uh, uh, pipelines and oleoducts, such as working on the uh, various uh, ways of uh, exporting Central Asia uh, oil and gas to Europe in a safe way. Uh, and uh, when it comes to Ukraine, you know that an important dimension of it is to be able, once we have uh, oil and gas in Eastern Europe, let's say in Hungary, for example, or in Slovakia, to be able to send it back to Ukraine. And sometimes we buy gas and oil from Russia just to send it back to Ukraine if need be. So we are working to, to get the capability of receiving energy. We, we are working on a terminal in Croatia, another one in the Baltic state, um, to, to have LNG. We are working to, to try to be able to, to, to have uh, uh, energy independence uh, and security. And the EU is uh, heavily subsidizing all that. And we believe that uh, uh, in uh, five years, we shall have achieved uh, 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 a real diversi diversification of our sources of uh, energies. But uh, this is uh, rather middle term than, than immediate short term. Obviously, the, there are a lot of issues, economic issues, that have security implications. It's very hard, I think, to turn those over in terms of decision-making to a military alliance. You would hope that members of the military alliance would reflect on the fact that being more dependent on the country they worry about threatening them is probably not a good policy. But I think those are political issues. This, this goes back to the Cold War. The U.S. and Europeans broke over issues of natural gas shipments from the Soviet Union, let alone Russia. But I think you, you raise an important issue. I just don't see NATO as being the right framework to try to handle those kind of decisions. Okay, um, let's take a couple of questions at a time. Um, that should help us get through them faster. Um, the lady in blue down the front here. Um. Thank you. My name is Kathy Schubertitze. I'm a postgraduate student at George Mason University. And my question um, is about the Russia's threat to the EU and NATO, um, the utility of NATO as a common defense um, against ISIS and some threats that are obvious um, coming from Russia. Um, uh, for example, um, I'm sure you all know that Russia um, supplied, in increased the uh, long-range um, missiles uh, in Crimea. It, is, uh, it has formed a def defense cooperation deal with Egypt and they are holding a common um, military exercise in the Mediterranean. And with these things in view, and, and um, with the basic principle that countries that are unstable uh, 
uh, pose a security risk to their immediate neighbors. How, um, how do you see that um, abandonment of the idea of NATO enlargement is in fact in the security interests of um, the EU or NATO in general? And also uh, speaking about the utility of uh, some of the new members of, or potential members, um, uh, as well as some of the pledges made to Ukraine, for example, that if it handed over its nuclear weapons to Russia, the uh, US and the UK would come to its defense. Um, given that Georgia is the largest per capita contributor to NATO missions in Afghanistan and was in Iraq, um, uh, this, uh, do you think that um, kind of abandoning that path, uh, that vision that um, was formed in the 90s and then in the early 2000s is something that could, down the road, um, become even more dangerous for Europe prime? Okay, great. And let's take one more question. Um, the gentleman up there in the center. Thank you so much for those riveting presentations. I'm Balaj Martinfi. I'm a doctoral student at the School of International Service with Dean Goldgeier. Um, I heard very interesting points about sort of the inadequacy of Berlin Plus agreements using NATO forces, uh, using NATO equipment for EU missions, pooling and sharing, smart defense, and how we're not doing enough. I've also heard very interesting points about how European defense budgets are declining. I am Hungarian, so I do have to point out that the Hungarian defense budget is increasing for 2015, despite what the European Leadership Network may say. Um, but that's besides the point. My question is to Dean Goldgeier. You were pragmatic in saying that there should be NATO military assistance to Ukraine. Sort of, I presume that means American military assistance too. My question is, are we hoping to change the Russian calculus in as much as they will stop the fighting or draw back or whatever the end goal over there is. But if we're not hoping to change the calculus, what sort of narrative or message does that send that the US and the US-led Western military alliance is willing to provide weapons to a country and sort of bleed that country out in order to advance its interests versus Russia, but not willing to commit all the way? Thank you. I'd like to start on this up. Sure. Well, yeah, I'll respond to both. Uh, the, I mean, the issue of enlargement, I think it's really important to recognize, and it, it came up uh, here uh, earlier. I don't see how the European Union could have ever enlarged if it hadn't been for NATO enlargement. Uh, because what NATO enlargement did is it ensured the security of those states, and it enabled the European Union to then proceed, knowing that those states were were secure. Could Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania have come into the European Union if it hadn't been for the NATO security guarantee? I don't believe it would have been possible. And I think EU enlargement, of course, was, is the most important thing for all of these countries, that they were able to come into the European Union and benefit from what the European Union provides. But I, I believe that this was a common effort of NATO and the European Union. And you know, NATO couldn't provide the things the European Union provides, but uh, the European Union wasn't capable of doing what NATO would provide. So I think both institutions were very important. And I think this issue of, of you know, uh, the role of enlargement, I think it's important to, to think about what would have happened had NATO not enlarged. I already referred in my remarks to this gray zone between NATO, EU, Europe on the one hand and, and Russia on the other, and you've got these countries sitting in the middle that are 
that are, that, I mean, sitting in that gray zone that are insecure, that have the frozen conflicts uh, that, that we haven't been able to define an architecture for. Imagine if that's what the rest of Central and Eastern Europe looked like. Uh, if they were, if they were, had remained in that gray zone between NATO and the EU on the one hand and, and, and Russia on the other, I think we would see a tremendous amount of insecurity and stability across Europe rather than insecurity and, and instability in just one, uh, in just one place. Now, I do want to say in that regard that I think Doug's point about the, the and I do think the rebalance is the important word because the, the, the notion was that the United States was overbalanced in Europe and the Middle East and needed to rebalance its foreign policy. And I agree that that rebalance to Asia is critical and, and is of great strategic importance. And that with finite resources, determining priorities is, is, is critical. I, in fact, believe that a U.S. rebalance, a successful rebalance, is only possible with a stronger Europe. If Europe doesn't do what it needs to do in order to be able to take care of issues in its neighborhood, uh, I don't think the U U.S. rebalance can be, can be successful. Um, you know, which brings me to Balash's point, which is, which is on, you know, this, this military assistance, right? Because, you know, based on what I just said, you can say, well, Europe should be taking care. It's, it's a European issue. Ukrainian security is a European issue. Europe should be doing this. Uh, I do think uh, that Europe uh, on these issues in the neighborhood should, uh, should be able to be more in the lead and to be able to do more. I think in this particular case, uh, the challenge that Russia has posed is great, uh, and the United States should care a lot about it because, in my view, it goes along with the broader set of challenges the United States faces to the liberal international order that it built after World War II and has been maintained since then, and in my view, is still important for U.S. foreign policy. Uh, and as was stated in the Obama national security strategy, this liberal international order is, is central to U.S. foreign policy, but what was not stated in that national security strategy is the geopolitics that still exist, and we have countries that are challenging that order. It's China, it's Russia, it's Iran, uh, and I think the United States needs to, uh, needs to recognize that and, and address that. In terms of, in terms of providing assistance uh, to the Ukrainian government, I think, you know, it's at war with uh, groups that are backed by the Russian government, supplied by the Russian government, uh, that the Russian government, since the sanctions were imposed last year, has paid no price for the actions. And last year, when, when the sanctions were imposed, the, um, the formulation was that they would, that if Russia continued on its aggressive path, that there would be additional response. There's been no additional response. And uh, the uh, Ukrainian government uh, is, is not able uh, to, uh, it doesn't have the means to defend itself uh, very effectively. Challenge, of course, is even with that assistance, it still may not be able to use that assistance very effectively given the way that it's organized, the military and security forces are organized. Uh, I, but I do think that it's important uh, to, uh, to do what we can uh, to support that government, both economically and militarily, uh, in order to enable it to uh, survive as a regime, uh, to be able to move forward with its reforms, uh, and to make sure that Putin does, in fact, pay some price for the continued aggression that he has engaged in, and as he's ratcheted it up without a response, uh, I think for him, uh, there would be no reason not to continue to move forward with the kind of aggression that he's been engaged in. 
Now, if the question is, can you give arms and not be prepared to put in troops, the answer is sure. We do that all the time. I mean, that was America's policy in Nicaragua. It's what the U.S. and Europeans and others are doing in Syria. The U.S. did it in Afghanistan, Africa, the support of UNITA in Angola. I mean, these go on and on. So, of course, you can do it. The question is, what's the outcome? I think what, you know, it's interesting to look at the difference, I would argue, of likely outcomes of Afghanistan and uh, Ukraine, which is Afghanistan was not vital, ultimately, to the Soviets. They weren't willing to pay the cost. They got out. I think that Putin views uh, Ukraine as vital, so he'll up the ante. And if you're not willing to put in troops, that means you simply intensify the conflict which the Ukrainians will lose. So the question is, have you achieved anything then? And my answer there is, I don't think so. You've made the problem worse, as opposed to actually achieved an outcome that, that's particularly helpful. I mean, a lot of issues were raised. The earlier question, I don't see how NATO solves the ISIS problem. ISIS is a result of America's idiotic invasion of Iraq. That's it. It's not that we didn't leave enough troops. It's we blew the place up, and my goodness, something bad happened, and we were utterly unprepared. We created the sectarian regime. I mean, our allies in Baghdad still use militias that slaughter Sunnis, and no surprise, Sunnis turn to somebody to protect them. Libya is doing the same thing. Libya was a catastrophe. We have two governments, two parliaments, multiple factions, ISIS moving in, all the... You know, so the notion that NATO solves problems by invading other places, it strikes me. No, it creates them. And the question is what to do about ISIS. I'm not convinced that what the U.S. is doing now is going to be terribly helpful. It's a largely American operation. 85% of the airstrikes are American. Um, you know, the idea of putting troops in, I think, is, is very foolish. I think on issues like Egypt and you know, the Mediterranean, look, if, if Putin wants Egypt, let him have it. I think what's going on there is the Egyptians actually are coming back to the U.S. All of their, all of their wonderful toys are American-made. They need spare parts. They need, you know, I mean, he can't provide them any of that stuff. I think what Putin is doing there, what he's doing in North Korea, there's been a certain amount of a, a revival of the relationship there. He's playing with America, which is if you're going to play with me, I'm going to play with you. I think this is geopolitics. I don't think there's a lot of substance there. I mean, I just don't know what he's going to do in Egypt that worries me. I mean, and, I mean, they're thugs. I mean, it's an awful place. I don't like the Brotherhood, but the current regime is worse than Mubarak. So, I mean, the notion we should worry if the Russians show up, I say let them. The 94 agreement, it's worth this. The 94 agreement, the U.S. and other signatories commit to going to the United Nations if somebody threatens Ukraine with nuclear weapons. That'll help. There's, there's no military component to that agreement. Now, the Ukrainians knew what they were signing. They got what they thought they could get. Now, you can argue that they shouldn't have signed. I mean, I've, I actually think there was an argument they should have kept them. I mean, just a couple of nukes. I mean, the problem is even pre-Putin, it was a fairly unstable place. But still, you could imagine that would have changed Moscow's thoughts if there were a half dozen you know, missiles floating around somewhere. And nevertheless, we're well past that. It strikes me the 94, there was never anything serious as part of that that actually had a military component that the Ukrainians could rely upon. And finally, the question of Georgia, you know, putting in troops, the Georgians thought that would get them a security guarantee, and I think the Bush administration probably misled them. But it's not a very good uh, bargain from an American standpoint, confront a nuclear armed power over interest it views as vital. I mean, the Macedonians do that. When I was at Camp Ag I think it was Camp Eggers in um, Kabul, I think it was the Macedonians who handled the gate. I mean, you know, we kind of, everything, I mean, Camp Eggers, they had a compound for everybody. I mean, the Turks are there, everybody's there. And I think of the that was the Macedonians' job. Well, that was nice. I'm less pressure on America, but if overall, that was not such a substantial commitment that I'd say yes, and we should defend them in very dangerous circumstances. Huh. Uh... Um, I, I largely agree with uh, the last points, but I, I will beg to disagree on a number of points. Uh, first to your question, uh, Madam. Uh, I think uh, the difficulties we have is that we tend to analyze the problems of today of tomorrow with a 
uh, intellectual schemes of yesterday. When we think about enlargement, as James rightly pointed out, we think about the happy precedence of uh, all the Eastern Europe, and I agree that without NATO they would not have been able to join Europe or it would not have been a success. Now, uh, should we apply the same criteria to Georgia and Ukraine? We are in a different world. In the 90s, uh, that was uh, what uh, a French minister, I will be provocative, called the hyperpower, the US hyperpower. <laughs> uh, it was a unilateral moment where the US could do what they want. We are not in this moment anymore. And uh, to, to, to James, I will argue that Article 10 is extremely important, indeed, in the NATO treaty. But I consider that Article 5 is as or even, even more important. And you know, my grandfather, who, had the went, who went to the two world wars, uh, told, me all, told me always, there is something even worse than to have uh, an alliance. It's to miss and to fail to honor an alliance. And the question is, do you know if there is a single country in Europe or a single uh, 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 significant uh, part of the US population who is ready to die for Tbilisi or for Kiev? All that I know is no. There's not a single political force in the US or in uh, the EU who has argued that we could be a, uh, put in a war with Russia for these territories. This is the uh, bitter uh, reality. And I know we are not exactly where we were in the 90s. It's very bitter for us to have to admit that because we would like to have Georgia and Ukraine enjoying the same uh, chances than the other had. And this is unfair, but life is not always fair. And the uh, Wildcat Institute is interesting is that uh, it has the capability of saying that time to time. Uh, it is even worse for me to say to Georgia and to Ukraine, uh, come, we shall be your allies, and then Russia knows perfectly that we shall not go at war for them, and then Russia attacks and we do nothing. And then it's not only Georgia and Ukraine who suffer, it's also the whole NATO who, who is at risk. Because we have also to think to uh, the credibility of NATO. So it has to remain open, because Article 10 says it, I very agree with James, but it has to remain open till the moment where we shall feel we are able to take Georgia and Ukraine, uh, and you, you remember that in Bucharest in 2008, we have said they will come one day. Uh, till the moment where they will be able to come, and that NATO could honor its obligation towards Georgia and Ukraine. Otherwise, it's just a lie. It's just a politician thing. It's just a despicable thing, you know? So um, I, I don't, uh, I, I am very, very, uh, I have very good conscience when I uh, talk to my uh, Georgian and Ukrainian friend to tell them, you know, it's better for you to know exactly where we stand. I'm not telling you lies. I'm not selling you uh, wrong money. Uh, we shall not go at war for you, so you, we have to do uh, to find the best solution, the best path for you otherwise. And that's what we are trying to do uh, with Ukraine. Uh, on, um, and on Egypt, uh, I don't care so much. Uh, basically, you know, uh, the, the, the bitter truth also there is that if we want to solve Libya, we may have to, to do the same with Egypt that the US made uh, in, under another presidency with Ethiopia for Somalia. If we, want, uh, if we are not ready to send troops in Libya, if uh, our population are not ready to go at war with Libya, then we can support and help like uh, we are doing uh, elsewhere, but then somebody has to provide the troops. And who else than Egypt? We have to, to, to think to, to that when we criticize uh, Egypt. Um, now, um, about military, uh, finally, uh, uh, two points about uh, military assistance to Ukraine. 
Yeah, providing arms to Ukraine is, um, and answering your question about uh, Berlin Plus, only we have only the Altea operation. This is the only one on the Berlin Plus. Um, we have a model of Croatia, mostly, and uh, we provide arms to Croatia, and this made uh, the Balkan War end. Uh, is, this, is it the same situation? It's really a point on which we have not uh, a final view, I think. Um, if we really believe that uh, uh, we have no other choice, if Russians continue to advance, uh, if a means agreement that doesn't hold, uh, then uh, we may be obliged to resort to, to send the weapons to Ukraine as a last resort, knowing that it doesn't guarantee the victory at all, and it could very well end with uh, even uh, Russia taking a, bit, uh, a bigger share of Ukraine than, than uh, we could have thought, because it would take time before, before Ukrainian troops are armed, are able to use that. You know, the, when you look at the situation of the Ukrainian army, uh, it's quite worrying. It's quite worrying. Uh, they have some very courageous troops, and they are some very poorly uh, organized. Last point, rebalancing towards Asia. Yes, it needs, it requires a stronger EU, I uh, agree. If I may submit, uh, US will not able to fully rebalance as long as there's not peace in the Middle East. Because when you, uh, if you remember that, uh, if you have seen recently still uh, all of the discussion about the Netanyahu visit, the Israeli-US alliance, etc. Given the very special character of the, of the relation between US and the Middle East and with Israel, uh, it is, uh, in my view, uh, a, bit, uh, a bit optimistic to believe that the uh, U.S. is free to uh, uh, refocus toward Asia. The reality is that U.S. has to live with a legacy, and it is not so easy uh, to, to refocus. So it's uh, healthy to try, but uh, I'm uh, doubtful that this would uh, uh, be really uh, as successful uh, as it should be. And don't remember the crisis. Uh, maybe the challenge is in Asia, but the crisis and the immediate difficulties, the wars, are around Europe, not in Asia. Uh, last, last point, I had forgotten one point in the question about Russia sanctions. I will disagree that Russia government paid no price for the sanctions. I would uh, rather take the opposite view that sanctions did overreach because they have uh, damaged the Russian economy more than we had planned. 10% uh, of recession this year and uh, financial resources which will uh, make uh, Russia being able to continue the war in Ukraine, uh, as IMF tells us, impossible at the present rhythm after December uh, of this year. don't know if it is true, but uh, it shows you that uh, the sanctions uh, have had an impact on Russia, even if it's difficult to make the distinction between what comes from the oil prices, what comes from the mismanagement of the Russian economy, and what comes from the sanction. But we have tried, if you go on the site of the Commission, we assess approximately one-third of the problem is caused by the sanction, which was higher than expected. Sorry for asking. Great. Let's take a couple more questions. Um, the gentleman off the back. Hi, Carl. Carl Golovin, jfkvigil.com. Uh, NATO seems, as a military alliance, uh, a, a basis for analyzing things from that perspective. I'd like to raise the monetary issue internationally as a means to focus instead on maybe achieving peaceful uh, coexistence. Uh, the U.S. abandoned its obligations under Bretton Woods to redeem dollars accumulated by other governments in, in gold, and we've basically replaced it with a militarized petrodollar. And I want to ask your opinion on for example, Iceland is a place where East and West could meet and negotiate 
a new Bretton Woods agreement where each nation could hold one another accountable to not overinflating our currency, which just facilitates militarization rather than peaceful economic coexistence. Okay. Um, thank you. Andre in the front row here. Andre Larion of Cato Institute. Uh, two small observations and one question. Uh, observation about sanctions. Sanctions uh, has al have almost no impact on the Russian economy. We have studied and adjusted. We can discuss whether oil prices or the war itself, but sanctions imposed by US or European Union did not produce any serious uh, impact on the Russian economy. And uh, observation and the question to my old friend, Doug. Um, <laughs> Uh, Doug, it uh, seems to me uh, you have a couple of mistakes. Uh, one is considering uh, this war against Ukraine by Russia uh, the pre-1914 war. Definitely not. It is post-1945. And it is being treated uh, and presented by the uh, Russian authorities uh, exactly as it is. It is war against the West, against the Anglo-Saxon world, against NATO, against the United States. It is not war against Ukraine. It is very clear, many, many statements from Mr. Putin himself talking about the legions of NATO fighting in Ukraine and to all propaganda machines. So that is why it's a different conflict. So that is why for analysis it's necessary to keep in mind. Second, concerning this Budapest memorandum, it is not correct that is uh, in that memorandum stated the U.S. should consult with the United Nations. No, it is very clear. Uh, United States and United Kingdom have given assurance, security assurances to Ukraine uh, uh, for independence, sovereignty, and territorial integrity of Ukraine uh, in uh, order that Ukraine would give up its nuclear arsenal, third uh, in size uh, of that time. So uh, my question would be to you. Uh, whether United States uh, assurance, security assurance, in the case of nuclear country, means nothing. Just even that paper that you have shown, just there is no commitment whatsoever. And it would be same applied to Iran negotiations, Korean negotiations, any other negotiations like Taiwan, Japan, and so on. So that is why uh, nobody should expect any action from the United States if the United States uh, commit itself for security insurance of any country that is ready to give up nuclear weapons. And second question uh, concerning, uh, you said, uh, these kind of helpless Baltic countries. Um, uh, Baltic countries are members of NATO. In the case of the aggression of Russia against Baltic states, should we understand you correctly that the United States should not fulfill Article 5 of the NATO treaty in this particular case? Okay. Um, I think we probably, yep, we're kind of out of time for questions. We've got about four or five minutes um, to respond to these questions and any final thoughts you might have. Perhaps Doug would like to start this time. I don't know what the incentive is for politicians not to inflate the currency. If you have one, please give it to me. I don't see it in the United States. I don't see it in other countries. So without an, you know, an incentive for politicians not to inflate, I don't know how one's going to come up with a new Bretton Woods to uh, get a, more, a better global system. 
Well, you know, the war, you know, uh, Russia didn't go after Ukraine until the events of last year. I think they were happy to have a Ukraine they thought was relatively within its zone of interest and zone of control. When that changed, they went after it. Now, I think that they, uh, there are a lot of things that probably motivate Mr. Putin, but if he really wanted to damage America, he'd go after America and the West directly. He hasn't. You know, that uh, what, what he's managed to conquer so far, get influence over, is pretty small. It's South Ossetia, it's Abkhazia, you know, Crimea, which once was Russian, and the Donbass, to the extent you want to count those as his. So I don't see that as being kind of a major campaign against the West and the United States. If so, it's not very successful. He's not, not much of a commander, if, if that's what it is. The, uh, <laughs> look, I assure all of you, it's written on here that I love you, okay? Now, how good is that? It is, it is as good as I assure you of your territorial integrity. Russia also signed the agreements and made an assurance. The difference is when we go to the North Koreans, we say, we want your assurance you're not going to develop nuclear weapons. And oh, by the way, we want to have inspections. We want to do this. We want you to turn the materials over. The Budapest thing did not. You just go look at it. One of the things is they commit to go to the United Nations. It's in it. So the question is, if you sign an agreement that has nothing specific, you get what you pay for. It's, it's, I mean, you know, the, the famous, the most famous piece of paper, I think, in history, right, is in 1938. You know, meeting of Adolf Hitler, he signs to the, you know, the Prime Minister, oh, I, I don't even remember what it said, oh, I love you very much, Mr. Prime Minister. He came back, peace in our time, waved it in the wind. It meant nothing, and it, just like the Budapest Memorandum. Now, you could argue we should have, but there is, if there is no specific step, to in, you know, enforce that, you can't blame us for not enforcing it, and nobody can blame us for not doing so, and we made no promise to do so. And in terms of Article 5 in the, the Baltics, they're part of NATO, we're a member of NATO, I'd protect them. I think the mistake was bringing them in, and that's why I'd like to see us reform NATO, but I think they're there, you don't abandon them while they're in NATO, and while we're part of it. Yeah, just two quick comments. One, just to clarify, um, I think Francois misunderstood my point about the sanctions. It wasn't uh, that the sanctions uh, that were imposed didn't have an impact. It's that um, we had said that if Russia continued on its further aggressive behavior, that we would impose additional sanctions, and that has not taken place. They've engaged in quite a bit of uh, aggression in 2015 uh, without having a, a response from the West. I do think that um, the Budapest Memorandum is important in, you know, whatever the was written, whatever. I mean, the Ukrainians gave up those weapons, and I was at the NSC in what was then called the Russia-Ukraine-Eurasia Directorate in 1996, when in June of 1996, the last nuclear weapons left Ukrainian soil, it was, it was really a big moment uh, for those of us working uh, in that administration, you know, seeing what had really been led by people like Bill Perry and Ash Carter at the, at the Pentagon at the time to try to work with the Ukrainians to, to remove those weapons. Uh, that followed 1994 agreement, and uh, this was a, a it, this was seen as a significant accomplishment, and uh, you know that had the, the vision for which had come from James Baker and the George H W Bush administration to get the nuclear weapons uh, out of Belarus, Ukraine, and Kazakhstan, and leave us with one nuclear weapon state where there had been one previously. I mean, I would go further than you, and you know, looking at both Budapest Memorandum, what's happened to Ukraine looking at what happened to Libya, which also gave up its nuclear weapons. If you're a country out there and you have nuclear weapons and you're being asked to give them up, uh, you're going to be paying attention to the fact that countries that have given them up uh, have, been, uh, have been attacked. And I think that that really 
harms the non-proliferation agenda that we have to try to prevent the spread of nuclear weapons. And, uh, you know, we may not think much of these agreements, uh, but countries that are looking out there and thinking, weighing the pros and cons of, of going along with either not pursuing nuclear weapons uh, or giving up weapons that they have, uh, I think they're going to look at these examples, these recent examples, and think, you know, why should we go along with that? We'll end up just like these other countries. Iceland model is uh, quite interesting, and uh, I uh, mm, will encourage you to continue pleading for it. Um, about sanctions, uh, I think uh, you are joking, we are playing with words. Uh, we don't talk about the same thing. Um, you, you surely would like to see more sanctions or some other ways of action. Uh, that's clear. We will. Yeah, objective picture. Yeah, we are not. As I said, we are not talking about the same thing. Objective picture. If you look at the primary, direct, immediate effect of the sanctions, you could. I would not necessarily disagree with you. Now, this is an, abs an absolutely limited view. Sorry to say so, and to be brute, but uh, you have to take the impact of the sanctions, not their immediate impact, but their overall impact. Their overall impact is big. It's bigger than expected. Is one third of a Russian recession. Ninety-nine percent of the economists would say so. And look. Look, you can dispute that, but you cannot dispute that uh, since we have taken sanctions, because all the banks don't want now to make uh, business with Russia, all the capital flow from Russia, as, uh, which goes out, is uh, the result of that. And we have measured not only the recession in Russia linked to sanctions, but we have measured the impact of our sanction in Russia on the European economy with very great precision. Like I can tell you, it's big. It's uh, zero three percent uh, of, of growth per year. Uh, and uh, the 0.3% of growth per year that we lose uh, it makes in many countries of Europe the difference between a recession and growth. So uh, I think we are just not talking about the same thing, honestly. You are talking about the direct immediate impact of a sanction, and as a polemist, I would, uh, I would uh, I encourage you to continue that, but please uh, don't uh, uh, go with a very uh, inaccurate statement if you are not broadened. Thank you. Okay, well, I think we have to wrap it up there. We're a couple of minutes over schedule, so thank you for being patient. Um, this has been a really interesting discussion on a topic that we couldn't possibly hope to cover in an hour and a half. Um, so we'd like to invite you to join us upstairs for a quick lunch, um, continue our discussion. Um, you go outside um, and straight up the spiral staircase, and lunch will be served in the conference center. And please join me in thanking our panelists. Thank you very much.